You are listening to the weekly podcast of Fellowship Paragold, a church committed to making the real Jesus known to every man, woman, and child. For more information about our church, please visit us at www.fellowshipparagold.com. So I am glad that you're here, and I'm glad to be here with you. If you have a Bible, turn with me to the book of Philippians, chapter 1. We are a couple of weeks into a new series in Paul's letter to the Philippians. Let me just tell you our hope for this series, okay, right out of the gates. Uh, In Acts chapter 8, verse 8, uh, Luke says that when the real Jesus comes into a city and people start meeting Jesus and the gospel of Jesus starts spreading, that there would be much joy in that city. Uh, and, the, and the reason for that is because the real Jesus is the real joy that you and I long for. And so our prayer for this city, I know, brother, when Jared planted this church, uh, the, the, one of the foundational truths from day one is that we hope and long to see a city that is just full of the joy that only Jesus can bring. And so that's our heart for this series. And what we're discovering together in this series is how Jesus brings joy to all of life, every aspect of your life, even the darkest moments of your life which is what we're going to see in our text today. So with that, uh, look with me at Philippians chapter 1. We'll start in verse 12, and we will read through verse 18. So let's look at this together. One twelve. Paul says, I want you to know, brothers, and that means brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and robbery, but others from goodwill. And the latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. Verse 18, Paul's summary statement, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. So this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, Let's pray together one more time. Well, Father, I do pray that you would just grab um, our hearts this morning and pull us into focus to see uh, what this life is really all about. The things that we're chasing and running after, uh, put them into perspective in light of the glory of the love and the grace that you've shown toward us in Jesus. Uh, People come into this room, myself included, bringing baggage and pain and Um, anger and sadness and fear and anxiety and hurt and brokenness and bitterness and disappointment and despair and boredom. God, I just pray that you would grip our hearts in such a way with the good news of Jesus that you would produce repentance and joy. (laughs) The joy that we long to experience. Bring us into that this morning. Uh, I pray and I ask for your glory and for our joy. Amen. Well, it was an emotional time for us this week in the Breckenridge house because we sent our firstborn child off to her very first day of kindergarten. So uh, here's a picture of Lucy's first day, and uh, there's me and Carrie in the picture with her. And in this picture, we are both joyful and excited for her, and we are grieving a little bit and trying to fight back the tears uh, because that's what this whole watching your kid grow up thing is like, right? There's joy in it. And there's an appropriate amount of sadness in it because I feel like you blink and all of a sudden they're grown. 
Um, and as I thought a lot about that this week, about the joy and the sadness that comes with growing up in this world, it reminded me of one of our favorite movies to watch as a family, which is the movie Inside Out. Raise your hand if you've seen Inside Out. Okay, the people who don't have kids or who are empty nesters are like, what is this movie? Uh, well, listen, if you've never seen Inside Out, let me give you a quick rundown. So this is a story about a little girl named Riley, who's this happy-go-lucky 11-year-old who faces this challenge when her family relocates from Minnesota to San Francisco for her dad's job. And now all of a sudden, Riley finds herself in a new surroundings, away from all her friends, all her, you know, her school, her hometown, everything she knows. But the true main characters in the story are the five personifications of Riley's emotions that live inside her head. And so there they are, anger, fear, disgust, sadness, and joy. Uh, and the entire plot revolves around the tension that exists between joy and these other emotions, especially sadness. There's just no framework for how joy and sadness or joy and sorrow work together. And so um, in order to kind of show you what I'm talking about, I want to show you a little clip. Let me set this up. This is Riley's first time seeing her brand new house in San Francisco. And if we can get this clip to work, that'll be awesome. If not, it'll be okay. Let's see if we can make it work. Maybe it's nice on the inside. We're supposed to live here? We have I'm telling to. you, it smells like something died in here. Can you die from moving? Guys, you're overreacting. Nobody is dying. A dead mouse! Ah! Great. I'm going to be sick. House of the dead. What are we going to do? We're going to get rabies. Get off of me. Hey, hey, hey. All through the drive, Dad talked about how cool our new room is. Let's go check it out. It's going to be great. Yes, 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 yes. No, 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 no. I'm starting to envy the dead mouse. Get out the rubber ball. We're in solitary confinement. Riley can't live oh, here. He's right. It's the worst. It's really bad. It's, it's absolutely the worst. This house it's the worst as I've ever been in my entire life. Oh, yeah. Hey, it's nothing our butterfly curtains couldn't fix. I read somewhere that an empty room is an opportunity. Where did you read that? It doesn't matter. I read it, and it's great. We'll put the bed there and the desk over there. The hockey lamp goes there. Uh, put the chair there. Oh, the trophy clutch over there. there. Stars. Yeah, I like that. Now we're talking. Let's go get our stuff from the moving van. All right. Goodbye. Well, guess what? The moving van won't be here until Thursday. You're kidding. You said it would be here yesterday. And I know that's what I said. That's what they the told me. Did you even read the contract? Anderson makes her move. She's closing in. Hey. Oh no, you're She's not. Coming behind you. Watch out. She put her hair up. We're in for it. Sorry. Hold on. Hello. Wait. You're kidding. Uh, uh, stall for me. I'll be right there. The investor's supposed to show up on Thursday, not today. Uh, I gotta go. It's okay. We get it. You're the best. Thanks, hon. See you, sweetie. Dad just left us. Oh, he doesn't love us anymore. That's sad. I, I should drive, right? Joy, what are you doing? Uh, just uh, give me one second. Um, you know what I've realized? Riley hasn't had lunch, remember? Hey, I saw a pizza place down the street. Maybe we could try that. Pizza sounds delicious. Pizza? pizza. Yes, pizza. Right up. That's good. 
the heck is that? Who puts broccoli on pizza? That's it. I'm done. Congratulations, San Francisco. You've ruined pizza. First the Hawaiians, and now you. <laughs> San Francisco ruined pizza. You don't put broccoli on pizza. Everybody knows that. Um, so, so there's this control board inside Rowley's mind, right? And throughout the whole movie, you have Joy trying to hijack and dominate this control board in order to control and, and manage and arrange Riley's circumstances in a way that produces joy in her life. Anything happens that threatens Riley's happiness, Joy's going to intervene, hop on the control board and try to change the situation and rearrange the circumstances to keep Riley happy. And the reason why I show you that clip is because I, I want to submit to you that if we're honest with ourselves, that is exactly how most of us think about and pursue joy in our lives. Look, if I, can, if I can just manage and control my circumstances and arrange my life the way that I want it, then I will find joy. Right? If I can avoid sadness and if I can protect all the things that I love and if I can have all, you know, if I can just, if I can change my situation, if I can get control of the situation and manufacture this, then I can have true and lasting happiness in my life. Listen, man, that, that is the game. What the filmmakers are trying to communicate to us is that is the game that human beings are playing. And it's a game that I'm very familiar with, especially in a consumeristic American Western culture. So I know for me, I've spent much of my life playing this game and pursuing this thing called the American dream, which is all circumstantial. So if I can go to school, if you're in this room and you're in high school or college, pay attention because this is the lie you're going to be fed your whole life. If I can uh, go to school and if I can perform well enough and get a degree and then find a good paying job and then make enough money in order to spend enough money and save enough money, then I can find joy in my life. If I can find a wife or a husband and get married and then have healthy, well-behaved kids, yeah, right, um, then I will find joy in my life. If I can, you know, uh, have the right friends and if I can protect all my loved ones, if I can have the approval of my peers and the people whose opinions matter to me, and if I can, you know, uh, fill in the blank. If I can pad my life with enough comfortable stuff, then I will find joy in my life. Then I can live happily ever after. You want to know what the problem is with that game? The, the way I've experienced it in my life is pretty obvious. When your joy is connected to your circumstances, when your joy depends on your circumstances, what happens when your circumstances change? What happens when things get worse? And they always do. What happens when your life gets hit with a wrecking ball and everything seems to fall apart? What happens to your joy then? And those aren't theoretical questions. That's a reality every single person in this room faces or has faced or some of you are facing now. Some of you come into this room this morning and you are grieving the loss of someone you love or you're grieving because someone you love is sick. Some of you are in distress because you have sick children. Uh, some of you are worried because you've lost your job or had your hours cut or you're in financial distress. Um, some of you are hurting because of things that happened to you in your past. Some of you are grieving your own sin. Some of you are suffering because of broken relationships. And all of those are real conversations that the pastors and I had just this week. And so what all of us have in common, wherever you find yourself, is that at the core of our being, all of us in this room long for true and lasting joy. 
A joy that's not dependent upon our circumstances. A joy that's not based on things going well for us, but a joy that's bigger than all of that. A joy that sustains us, even in life's darkest moments. And perhaps some of you find yourself asking the question, is that kind of joy even possible? Well, Paul writes this letter to the Philippians precisely to answer that question. And so, as we step into the main body of this letter, we see Paul really begin to open up what is the main theme of this letter, which is finding joy in all of life. In fact, Paul talks more about joy and more about uh, rejoicing in Philippians than in any other letter he writes. There's only 104 verses in this letter, and 16 times Paul talks about joy, which means if you do the math, every seven verses, guess what Paul's talking about? Joy! It's in your face all over the place in this letter. Paul's inviting us into a life where you find joy no matter what your circumstances are. And that's why scholars call this Paul's most joyful letter. But here's the situation, or here's the deal. I don't want you to miss this. Uh, In order for us to understand the significance of this being Paul's most joyful letter, you have to understand what's happening to Paul as he writes this letter. So what I want to do now is just turn our attention to the letter and let's talk about the situation that Paul is facing. You want to talk about circumstances? Let's talk about Paul's for just a moment. Okay, look with me at verse 12. Let's talk about his situation. He says, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. And now immediately, this sparks a question for us that we have to ask. What has happened to Paul? And he makes it clear at the end of verse 13 when he says, I've been imprisoned for Christ. So here's, what happened, here's what's happened to Paul. Paul's been arrested and thrown in prison as an enemy of the state because he's been walking around on the streets of the Roman Empire and telling Roman citizens that Jesus is Savior and Lord and not Caesar. And in Caesar's backyard, that's a capital offense that lands Paul in jail. So you have to keep this in mind when Paul's talking about how happy he is, all right, in Philippians. Because when Paul writes this letter about joy, he's not sitting in the comfort of his own office and drinking a cup of coffee the way I was when I wrote this sermon this week. Paul is chained up behind bars. The dude is under house arrest in Rome. He spends every moment of every day physically chained to a Roman guard or Roman soldier. Those cats were notorious for having their way with prisoners. They did whatever they wanted to you. Paul spends all of his time confined to these small living quarters for which, by the way, he has to pay his own room and board and he has to pay for his own food. That's exactly why the Philippians send Epaphroditus with a collection of money to Paul so he can pay his rent and have some food in his belly so he can stay alive and keep telling people about Jesus. On top of all of that, Paul, while he writes this letter in jail, is waiting to go to trial before the emperor Nero. I don't know how much you know about Nero, but the dude is insane and he absolutely hates Christians. So the historian Tacitus tells us that just a few years after Paul writes Philippians, Nero would blame the Christians in Rome for the great fire in Rome, which would launch an official statewide program of persecution against the believers in Rome. And so you can read all about this man. It's well-documented, tortured and murdered and thrown and fed to these wild animals. There's even documentation of how Nero would, would impale Christians on these, you know, these tall poles and then lift them up and set them on fire so they would serve as lamps for his orgies and his parties. Yeah, the dude was insane. 
And so on top of everything else, to add to his suffering, Paul sits in jail and knows he's about to go to trial before this madman and probably face his own violent execution, which is exactly what happened to Paul a few years later. Another historian, Eusebius, tells us that a couple of years after Paul writes this letter, he would be beheaded under the order of Nero. What's happened to Paul? Well, that's what's happened to Paul. And that's what will happen to Paul. But here's what I want you to see this morning is that this isn't unique to Philippians. This kind of evil and suffering happened to Paul everywhere the guy went. So if you turn uh, just a couple pages in your right, and I'll just put it on the screen for you. If we go to 1 Corinthians 4, let me just read a portion of Paul's autobiography for you. And let's make a list of what all happened to Paul. And Ryan can put the list on the screen for you so you can see it. 1 Corinthians 4, I'll pick up in verse 9. And I'll just read this quickly. Paul says this. He says, uh, For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and we thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. So here's a list of all the things that have happened to Paul. We flip over just a few more pages in the right to 2 Corinthians 11, verse 23. We read another list of what has happened to Paul. Verse 23 of chapter 11. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes Less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger from the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. These bad circumstances are what? Uh, In toil and in hardship through many a sleepless night. Guy can't even sleep. In hunger and in thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak? And I am not weak. Who is made to fall? And I am not indignant. There's another list of all the stuff that's happened to Paul. If Paul wrote a book in our culture, in our day and age, Uh, day and age in America, it would be called Your Worst Life Now. And yet he writes this book to the Philippians, this letter, all about joy, even in the darkest of circumstances. And what really blows my mind is what he says in 2 Corinthians 6.10. I'll put this on the screen for you. Paul says, listen, guys, I want you to understand something. In light of all that has happened to me, I am sorrowful yet always rejoicing in the midst of all his sorrows. Paul says, I'm always filled with joy. You can't shake it. 
And maybe when some of you hear this, you say, okay, all right, yeah. Let me speak to the inner skeptic in all of us in the room. You're saying to yourself, I get it, man. I see what Paul's doing. And quite frankly, it's annoying. Because Paul is one of those excessively cheerful people that no matter what happens, he's just going to put on a plastic smile and act happy and just act like everything's fine, right? We all know those kind of people. They're called sevens on the Enneagram. Um, just a joke to all you sevens. Do what you do best and laugh it off. It's just, it's, it's only a joke, all right? Um, Paul's, not, Paul's not delusional. He's not ignoring his circumstances. That's Stoicism or Buddhism. That's not Christianity. Paul's not sitting here going like, yeah, man, everything's fine. The dude's emotionally healthy. He says, I'm sorrowful, man. This hurts. I don't like this. But no matter how bad this gets, this can't touch my joy. That's the difference between Paul and Olaf, by the way, from the movie Frozen. (laughs) Olaf is this this like annoying pie-in-the-sky little snowman who's naive, and he's always happy no matter what happens to him. In one scene, he finds himself, he's a snowman, okay? He finds himself on a beach, melting to death in the snow. And he's singing like an idiot. And he's smiling. And he's pretending like everything is fine. And I need counseling because of how angry I get at Olaf. Every time my kids watch this movie, I'm like, this dude is fake, man. He's delusional. His circumstances are literally killing him, and he's singing about how great life is. Paul's not delusional. This hurts. I'm sorrowful. Yet this, no matter how bad this gets, this can't touch my joy, Paul says. I'm always filled with joy. The great uh, theologian and the biblical scholar, Alicia Chambers. said to me this week in a conversation, we had a phone call, and I was talking to her about how you'd had a rough week, I'd had a rough week, but we were talking about the suffering that she's endured in her life, and I was asking her about, what has this been like for you to be sorrowful, yet always rejoicing? And she said to me a quote that I'm going to have put on a coffee mug or a t-shirt or tattooed on my forehead or something. She said, for me, joy is the confidence... (laughs) Joy is the confidence that no matter how dark it gets, you know the darkness will not win. Hey, listen, man. Alicia and Paul are both right. Listen, the joy that Paul has is not blind to his circumstances. It's just bigger and brighter than his circumstances. Paul is inviting us into this kind of joy. This is what he's inviting you to experience. My guess is by this point, you're asking the question, okay, man, where can I buy some of that? Because I want to know where that's at. If this is true, Paul, how is it possible, right? How do you have this kind of joy? Well, that's a great question. We've talked about Paul's circumstances. Now let's talk about the source of his joy for just a moment, okay? So look back at verse 12. And as we do that, I want you to notice something. Paul says, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has really served to advance what? The gospel. gospel. I love this, man. Paul says, in other words, I want you to understand something. All the bad news that I've experienced has only served to advance the good news of who God is for us and what He's done for us in Jesus. 
And here's what I want you to notice. As Paul goes on and unpacks this reality, in every single verse, he mentions something about the gospel going forward and the person and work of Jesus being made known. So if you look at the text, you scan down it with your eyes. In verse 12, he says, I'm in jail, but the gospel's advancing. In verse 13, he says, I'm homeless, but guess what? It's become known throughout the whole imperial guard that the reason I'm here is for Christ. In other words, let me translate that for you. He's saying through all of this, Jesus is being made known. In verse 14, last phrase, he says, this has caused the disciples in Rome to speak the word, meaning the gospel, more boldly and without fear. In verse 15, he says, sadly, some of those people are preaching Christ from envy and robbery, but others are preaching Christ from goodwill. Verse 16, he says, the latter do it, meaning preach Christ out of love. But verse 17, the former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition. So what then? Verse 18. Everything Paul's saying in this text is building up to this so what right here in verse 18. Paul's given us his conclusion on how he interprets his situation. He says, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is being proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Hey, listen, I would circle that that in your Bible, because that that is the only source of true and lasting joy in all the universe. Seven times in this passage, Paul makes it abundantly clear that the state of his soul and the source of his joy is not dependent upon his circumstances going well for him, but the source of Paul's joy is none other than Jesus. Paul says, look, you can beat me up, you can lock me up, you can chop me up, but you can't touch my joy or take my joy because as long as I know Jesus and Jesus is being made known, Paul says, in that reality, I will rejoice All day long. Paul's inviting us to see that when your identity and your joy is that wrapped up in Jesus, you will have a peace, you will have a hope, you will have a confidence, you will have an unshakable joy that nothing, no amount of darkness or suffering, not even death, can take away from you. That's how Paul is able to rejoice in such deep sorrow. His joy is all wrapped up in Jesus. In a funny way, Paul reminds me of my friend Bobby, who's a massive Kansas City Chiefs fan uh, back in Kansas City. And I asked Bobby if I can use him as a sermon illustration in a a disparaging way. And he said, uh, well, it doesn't matter if I've ever given you permission or not. It's never stopped you from doing it. So um, I love Bobby. I'm going to pick on him for just a moment. He's a great guy, Christ follower. Huge Chiefs fan. I've got a little bit of love over here. All right. So... Uh, Bobby gets so wrapped up in the Chiefs that during football season, it's well known that you, all, if you ask him how he's doing, his answer totally depends on how the Chiefs are doing. So I've had many conversations with Bobby where it's been like, you know, hey man, how are you doing? Oh, things are great, dude. The Chiefs are playing great. They're winning. No, man, how are you? Like, how's your soul? Well, I just told you the Chiefs are great. Everything's great. I had a conversation with Bobby a few weeks ago just to catch up with him. And I said, uh, it's been a while, man. Been several months. Haven't talked to you. How are you doing? How's your family? How's th- how are things going? And uh, he says, uh, man, I got, dude, I got some bad news the other day, man. Bad news. Uh, it's, uh, things are not looking good. I'm, I'm on the, the line, phone thinking like, did you get a bad doctor's report? Or is like your mom or dad sick? I said, dude, what? my heart's beat. What's going on? You won't believe it, man. Chiefs cut Jamal Charles. 
I don't, I don't know what we're going to do, man. I don't know how we're going to make it. And then I'm, if I'm lying, I'm dying. He proceeds to say, and to make matters worse, this guy was my hero, and the Broncos picked him up, so I'm going to have to hate him now. Like, I, you know, and so I'm like, dude, this is, <laughs> how's your soul, man? Forget the Chiefs. Like, how are you doing, dude? How's your walk with Jesus? How's life? Bobby can get so wrapped up in the Chiefs that if you ask him how he's doing, it totally depends on how the Chiefs are doing. You want to know what I love about Paul, how Paul's life rebukes me? When the Philippians send Epaphroditus to ask Paul, how are you doing, Paul? Like, check in on him. How's prison? How are you doing? How are you, Paul? Paul's response is, oh, the gospel's great. No, how are you, Paul? Oh, the gospel is great. It just keeps going forward. Nothing can stop it. You can't contain this joy. Like, it's just, it's going to advance. It's going to advance. It's going to spread. It's going to infect people. Like, there's, no, there's nothing you can do. No, no, listen. Paul, I'm asking, how are you, man? How's your soul? Oh, well, I'm in prison. Uh, it's about as bad as it gets. It's about as dark as it gets. But my soul is great. My soul is at peace. My soul is whole. My soul is rest, at rest. Because no matter how dark this gets, not even death can take Jesus away from me or stop the gospel from moving forward through my life and my circumstances. And in that, I will rejoice all day, Paul says. I would circle that, that. Because that, that is the only source of true and lasting joy in all the universe. And Paul's asking us, right? He's inviting us to consider, what is that, that for you? That's what he's inviting us to consider. How would you fill in the blank? In what do I rejoice? In what do I find my identity and my joy? Another way of asking that would be, uh, what's the one thing in your life that if you could just have it, or as long as you can keep it, your life would be okay, right? Your story is happily ever after. That's the way it ends. Or what's the one thing in your life that if you lose it, or maybe it's a series of things, if you lose these, if these pieces fall out of the puzzle, then your life will utterly fall apart. The whole house of cards will come falling down, and you'll be devastated. What is that for you? In what do I find my joy? In health and wellness, I find my joy. As long as I'm healthy and I'm fit and I'm beautiful, then I will be content and I'll have joy. In spending money and having comfort, I find my joy. In illicit sexual experiences, I find my joy. In getting that promotion, I find my joy. In other people's approval, I find my joy. In having success and accomplishments or a good marriage, if I could only have a child, then I would have joy. You know, as I put this exercise to myself this week and was forced to be honest with myself, I found myself saying things like, in being a good husband and dad, I find my joy. In being a good pastor, I find my joy. In preaching good sermons, I find my joy. How ironic and foolish that in a sermon, this week I found myself finding my joy in preaching a sermon about how Jesus is the only source of joy. In having well-behaved children, I rejoice. Um, I don't know about you, man, but the first day back to school was magical. It could not have gone any better. Everybody was perfect. Everything was perfect. Return to Eden. It was amazing. Day two could not have been more different. Uh, day two and three, just lots of irrational emotions and refusal to cooperate. And it was crazy. We were running late. I missed my silence and solitude. Jared had to talk me off the ledge. It was just, 
And you want to know in those moments why I get, I get so angry and worked up with my children? Because when my identity and my joy is wrapped up in being a good dad, and you jack with that through your disobedience, then you're assaulting my self-worth. And now all of a sudden you're interfering with my joy. So guess who's going to get punished? Listen, Paul is inviting you to consider that all of these are good things. Most of them. Uh, most of the things we just mentioned are good. The, the problem is none of these things are God. And so there's a fundamental difference between like enjoying the gifts that God has given you and then looking to those things as your ultimate source of joy. When your joy is connected to your kids, your money, your job, your accomplishments, your friendships, your relationships, when your joy is connected to life circumstances, it's always going to go bad for you because guess what? There is no control board. You don't control your circumstances. And things always go wrong and people leave and people pass away and things get worse and you will be setting yourself up for a life of anxiously trying to manage and control your circumstances. Ultimately, you're going to set yourself up for a life that kills your joy and kills your soul. It's a life of utter despair, guys. I'm telling you, I've lived it. Utter despair. C.S. Lewis, the other great theologian, aside from Alicia Chambers, uh, C.S. Lewis once said, uh, joy never lies within our power, but happiness often does. And so Lewis is making a distinction. There's a difference between joy and happiness, right? Happiness is this situational, kind of temporary, superficial stuff that's based on things going well for you. Joy is this deeper, abiding reality, this sense of gratitude and contentment that nothing can take from you because it's bigger and brighter than your circumstances. And what Lewis is saying here is you have just enough control over your life to arrange your circumstances in a way that produces a temporary superficial happiness. But you do not have the power to arrange your circumstances in a way to produce true and abiding joy. You want to know why? Because you can't manufacture joy. You have to encounter joy. And that's what Paul's inviting us to do, man. Encounter and experience true and lasting joy. And that true and lasting joy is found only in Jesus. Here's what's fascinating. Uh, that's why Paul mentions joy 16 times in Philippians. You want to know the only word he uses more times than joy in Philippians? Jesus. He uses the word Jesus 20 times in Philippians. Every time he talks about joy, he immediately connects it to Jesus. Because Paul wants us to see that Jesus is the only one in the universe who has the power and the substance to fill your soul, the void in your life, and to satisfy your deepest longings. You want to know why only Jesus can be that for you? Because you were made for Jesus. I love what Paul says in another letter, Colossians 1.16. We'll put it on the screen. He says, For by Jesus all things were created in heaven and on earth. That includes you and me. And all things were created through Jesus. And all things were created for Jesus. And Jesus is before all things. And in Jesus all things hold together. Jesus is the only source of joy because you were made for him. And Paul says when everything else in your life falls apart, and it will, if not in this life, then at death, you'll lose everything. Jesus is the only one in the universe who can hold you together. That's a joy that can't be taken from you. My daughter has this toy that's like got the sh shapes and these objects that match the shapes. You have to try to fit it in there. I watched her yesterday for 30 minutes just frustrated and mad at, at trying to force a round peg through a square hole. You want to know why it wouldn't work? 
The two don't fit. They're not compatible. Paul says, your joy is only compatible with Jesus because you were made for him. I wish we had time to preach all of Colossians, man, because what Paul goes on to say in Colossians right after this is he says, the reason why Jesus is your joy is because Jesus is good news to both your sin and your suffering. He's good news to your sin and your suffering. He's good news to your sin because Jesus gave his life on a Roman cross to pay for your sin. This whole thing we've been talking about this morning is there's, there's bad news predicated upon the good news. The bad news is every single one of us has turned away from God, the source of joy, to pursue lesser joys and pleasures at the expense of one another, typically. And so what that does is that means we stand condemned before a holy God. But the good news is God didn't leave us there, lost in the darkness, but he sent the light of Jesus. Jesus, true joy, came pursuing us, running after us, and he gave his life for us to bring us home to God, to bring us into the love of God. That's what you were made for. To be known and loved by God. And Jesus came to bring you into that relationship. I'm telling you guys, the freedom from your past, the freedom from your mistakes and your sin and your failures, your your guilt and your fear and your shame, all of that is found in Jesus. That's true joy. And he's good news to your suffering. So, you know, we've talked about what's happened to Paul. Some of you are probably asking the question, what about what's happened to me? Like, how is Jesus good news to my grief and my pain and my brokenness? Well, I want to read, as we get ready to close, I want to read a quote from one pastor who says it like this. He says, In a fallen world, we all bump up against evil and suffering, some more than others. But the gospel hope is that no matter what happens to you, God is with you. God is right at your side. In your past, God was there with you. In your moments of abuse, God was there, torn open with you. As you watch your loved ones suffer and pass away, God is right there with you, grieving over the intrusion of death in his universe. As you weep, he weeps. As you hurt, he hurts. He is with you. And he's not silent. He's there bringing good news into bad spaces so that you can experience the joy of the empty tomb. The gospel of his resurrection announces that he is present and actively working in our lives to take evil and suffering and use it against itself to accomplish the renewal of all things for our good and his glory. You know what this this writer is saying is that God in Jesus, God will not waste your suffering. He will only use it to work the good news of Jesus deeper in you and further through you. There's this Romanian pastor who suffered a great deal under communist rule. And he's got this quote where he says, Christians are like nails. The harder you hit them, the deeper they go. This is the joy Paul's inviting you to experience. I mean, you just can't. It's almost annoying for other people. Like, you can't shake it. The harder you hit it, the deeper it goes. The more pervasive it comes, the bigger it grows. And, and, and it just can't be contained which is what you see happening in Paul's life, right? Paul says in, in verse, verse 12 and 13, I want you to know something, man. Through my imprisonment, the more I've been hit, the further the gospel goes. The more the joy spreads. And he says, the whole imperial guard has heard about Jesus. Do you realize something? The whole imperial guard, that's 9,000 soldiers. We know that for a fact. That's 9,000 people. How did all of those people hear about the joy that Paul has? 
Well, for starters, every six hours, he was chained up to one of them. <laughs> they had to be on a rotation, right? Where they come in every six hour shifts and they get chained up to Paul. And since Jesus is Paul's joy, he's going to talk about what you enjoy. He's going to talk about Jesus to every single one of them. And some of you are thinking, geez, Louise, man, he had to, they had to be chained up to a preacher. Like who's really being punished here? Paul <laughs> or the soldier, right? And every single guy that gets chained up to Jesus, you know what they encounter, to Paul, you know what they encounter in Paul's life? You know what they go back and tell their friends and their neighbors and their family and the other soldiers? They go back and they say, you won't believe this guy. He should be depressed. He should be in despair. He's beat down. He's homeless. He's got no money. He's, 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 you know Nero's going to kill him. Like this guy's in for it, man, but he's got this joy. I don't understand it. I can't explain it. I asked him, like, where do you find this? And he told me about this guy named Jesus. This guy named Jesus that, that, that God the Father has given this name above all names so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he's Lord and not Caesar and he's Savior and not Caesar. Like this guy Jesus and this stuff just spreads to, to thousands of people. The joy of the gospel spreads and people get infected with it. And, and then Paul goes on to say in verse 14, this has been so inspiring to the believers at Rome as they've watched Paul suffer that now they're out on the streets I mean, the whole reason that, that, the, that, the, that the Roman army put Paul in jail was to shut him up. Did it work? Listen, Paul wants to say, you can lock up the preacher, but when you meet Jesus, you cannot cage the joy of the gospel. You cannot stop it. You cannot prevent it. It cannot be contained. The harder you hit it, the deeper it goes, the further it goes. Would you believe me when I tell you that that is exactly what God wants to do in your life through your story, through your sin and your suffering. And when Jesus is your joy, when your identity and your joy is all wrapped up in Jesus, guess what happens? You begin to see your circumstances, whatever darkness befalls you, not as an obstacle to your joy, but as an opportunity to share your joy with other people, an opportunity to share what God has done in your life. And as that happens in and through our church, throughout our city, Acts 8.8 will become a realized reality. As people watch us like be light in the darkness, and they watch us suffer at the loss of great tragedies, and they watch us rejoice in the midst of our sorrows, and love one another well in the face of difficulty, this, the joy of the gospel will spread and this will be a city filled with great joy that comes from knowing the real Jesus. Man, that is what God wants to do in the city of Paragold. And guess what, man? You're part of that. That's what he wants to do in your life and through your life. And here's the key to all of this as we move to communion. The only way that we are able to have this joy, that the way this joy gets secured for us, is that Jesus, in his joy goes to the cross for you. It's amazing. Hebrews 12, 2 says that it was for the joy set before Jesus that he endured the cross on our behalf. See, we have this framework that joy and sadness don't have any, they're, they're not compatible, they don't work. It was Jesus' joy that sent him into the sorrow and the pain and the suffering of the cross. And he did it so that John 15, he says, my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. God loves you to the degree, he enjoys you to the degree that he would stop at nothing to bring you home so that you can be delighted by his love and his grace 
for you. That's the hope of the gospel. 